Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're very happy to have Brett Whalen on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, Dominion of God, Christendom. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're very happy to have Brett Whalen on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, Dominion of God, Christendom and Apocalypse in the Middle Ages. You may know that in the Gospels, Jesus told the disciples that just before the end time, the good news would be preached throughout the world. Well, the clerics of the Middle Ages, of course, knew this too, and they also knew that the good news was not being preached all over the world. In fact, it wasn't even being preached in Jerusalem, which was held, of course, by infidels. Well, they thought something had to be done about this, and thereupon followed the Crusades. Thus was the Church of Christ turned into the army of God. This is the story that Brett tells and tells very well in this book. As he points out, During the Crusades, things got a little bit out of hand, and what followed was a conflict between uh, various factions within the church itself. Uh, This is a terrific book, and it has lessons for our time, I think. I really enjoyed talking to Brett today, and I hope that you enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, Brett. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm very well. It's sunny and very nice here in Iowa today. You know, falls are beautiful here. You're in North Carolina, is that right? Yeah, and here it is gray and a little rainy, although we've had a bit of a drought lately. So I'm sorry to hear that. I'm not because, complaining. Yeah, the people, people uh, for some reason there are a lot of people uh, in our department who got their PhDs at, at, at uh, UNC, and uh, they, um, I, they, 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 speak, they say very nice things about it. Let's put it that way. Not to disparage Iowa. I love Iowa, but they say very nice things about North Carolina. So well, I, should, I, I was going to say I should tell our uh, listeners that we're talking to Brett Whalen today, and we'll be discussing his terrific new book, Dominion of God, Christendom, and Apocalypse in the Middle Ages. I'm sorry I cut you off, Brett. What were you going to say? I was just going to say I've been here in North Carolina since 2005 and uh, been enjoying it a great deal myself. Yeah, and where are you from originally? I grew up in Montpelier, Vermont, so I am a Yankee living down here in the, in the southern land. Yeah, well, why don't you just go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Well, um, yeah, I was born in 1972 in uh, Montpelier, <laughs> Vermont, and um, wind up, uh, I wound up attending the University of Vermont later. I guess I just skipped over a lot of my life there. Um, thinking back before the university, I was lucky that I grew up near the uh, public library and spent a lot of time uh, perusing books over there, including The Hobbit, <laughs> which if I had to pick a book that was formative for my intellectual development, <laughs> that might be one of the most important ones. Mm-hmm. And then I'm moving on to Lord of the Rings and things like this. And I was also an avid role player. Oh, really? Yes, I was. Um, 
And I, mean, I know nowadays where you have a, a lot of the stuff is online, but this is still back in the in the day when you had the paper and the dice. Oh, I remember. Did you play – now, I'm sorry to interrupt, but you caught my imagination. Did you play Dungeons & Dragons and that sort of thing? I did play Dungeons & Dragons. Yeah, well, you see, I, I – among, among other games. I don't know if a book has been written about um, the impact of Dungeons & Dragons on um, American culture, but uh, there, there should be one because I, I've literally found it every – I played – and I found it everywhere, literally everywhere. All, uh, people especially who do a little bit geeky things as adults, like computer programmers, I think all played it. I, it's, it's, it's astounding if you talk to people of a certain age who, um, who kind of led the computer programming revolution. They, were all, they all played Dungeons and & Dragons. And, and they, I, they, they, they sort of transferred the first role-playing games uh, uh, into um, to massive multiplayer games um, in the 1970s and 80s. So. Certainly amongst the medievalists, I think you find uh, it's not uncommon to run into people who spent time playing D&D and reading Tolkien when they were growing up. Oh, yeah. No, it's it's extraordinarily uh, common. Yeah, no, I, I knew. This was in Kansas. I knew about it. I mean, it and it took off very quickly. Anyway, this is enough about D&D. Sure. Well, then, mm-hmm. that, it, it's sometimes childhood things like that can be a really important part of um, fostering an interest, certainly. Yeah. Um, then I was fortunate when I went off to the university that uh, there's a top-rate medievalist there, Alfred J. Andrea. And one of the first classes I ever took with him was not a medieval history class, but was actually a pre-modern global history class. Hmm. And that, this is one of these courses that you start out in Mesopotamia and make your way all the way up to basically Christopher Columbus. Mm -hmm. And a great deal of the focus in that class, the way he taught it anyway, was on the development of different religious traditions. Mm -hmm. Um, Starting out... um, I mean, including Buddhism, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, and looking at the role of religion in, in the development of uh, global civilizations, and importantly, the spread of religions in the way that impacts the broader historical development of cultures and civilizations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, he also, though, was a medievalist, and with this childhood interest of mine in the Middle Ages, I wound up gravitating towards his classes and um, taking a number of classes on medieval Europe with, mm-hmm. with uh, Professor Andrea. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, in many ways, he was a role model. Where I remember at one point listening to him lecture, and I just thought, I want that guy's job. Yeah, it's, this seems it's great. I'm sorry, it's funny you say that. I've said this before on the show, but I had I had a very similar uh, experience when I went to college, actually here in Iowa at Grinnell College, and I um, I actually went to play basketball, and I met a guy uh, who has become my mentor, and he's he was a, he's a medievalist. He does uh, medieval Russia, and. Uh, right. I, I, you know, I sat in his classes and I had the same reaction. I thought this guy is really smart, and I want his job. And uh, so I, I basically tried to get it. <laughs> yeah, man, I think that's, that's I think that's a, it's, it can be a common experience where you you see a teacher like that, yeah. and got, it makes such a big impact. Yeah, on, no, it's absolutely true. And so then you went off to graduate school. Well, I did, and then it was actually I, I have to say it was a little bit more of a long and winding path than that. This, I was not necessarily the most focused undergraduate student, <laughs> let's put it that way. Um, I mean, I did find in my history classes, I sometimes a little uneven. And also, I hadn't done any Latin. Yeah. And so around senior year, I thought to myself, you know, I'd, I'd like to become a history professor, and ran into the, uh, the somewhat uncomfortable fact that uh, to do research at that level, of course, you need to be able to read the sources in their original yeah, language. Right. And I applied to a number of graduate programs and actually didn't get in anywhere. And I realize now I was applying to these PhD programs, and um, I mean I was nowhere near prepared to go on to that level. And so what I wound up doing was actually going out to the West Coast, um, and then taking an intensive Latin class. And that was my sort of conversion. If you're thinking of Augustine and conversion and things like this, right? That was my conversion experience, 
where I became much more of a focused student and worked worked a lot harder than I ever had. Because I had a goal at that point. And the Latin was then what uh, enabled me to enter into a master's program. And I actually went back to the University of Vermont because they had a terminal master's program. So there's no PhD students, but just MA students. And I worked with uh, Alan Andrea Moore there. And from that point, then wound up applying to Stanford and going to the PhD program. And I think none the worse for the wear, maybe I'd say even a lot better off that having, at least for, in my case, taking that slow boat, working on my language skills, sort of maturing intellectually worked out well, that um, I felt much more prepared to, to, to jump into grad school and, uh, and work my way forward from there. Um, I should add also that uh, um, a lot of my intellectual interest, though, in, in, in school did start back at the University of Vermont. Well, why don't you tell us how you came to write uh, Dominion of God? Well, um, when... One of the interests that I developed when I was doing my master's degree uh, was an interest in the uh, split between the Latin and Greek churches in the high Middle Ages, so starting in the uh, 11th, 11th, 12th, 13th centuries. Um, this is something that a lot of people are familiar with, this idea of uh, the schism between, between the, the Catholic and Orthodox churches. Uh, many people, this comes up in Western Civ classes, for example, with the date 1054, uh, mm -hmm. oftentimes featuring quite prominently. Um, where you have this split between the two churches over a number of differences of, of uh, doctrine and uh, their liturgical practices. And this was something that interested me, not as a point of ecclesiastical history, um, but rather I wound up wondering, how did Latin Christians, Western Christians, uh, the followers of Rome, how did they see their difference from the Greek Orthodox Church? How do they mm -hmm. see themselves as being distinctly Latin Christians? Mm -hmm. And that, that was a question that more and more started to interest me, was this issue of Latin identity, mm -hmm. uh, Western Christian identity. Mm -hmm. And how did you, is, I was going to say, how did you move uh, from that moment into this, because um, the book is really about sort of millenarianism and, and, uh, and the, the sort of attempt, attempt, what I think of as the attempt to force the end time, but uh, maybe I'm wrong about that. But how, how did you segue into that? Well, that's that's a great question. Um, it's part of what I encountered as I was working on this topic of the division between the two churches was the idea that at the end of time, the difference between them would somehow be reconciled, that the Greeks would in fact convert, so to speak, or return to, to the obedience of the Roman church. Uh, one of the big sort of cornerstone moments of this project is when I was at Stanford, I was working on a, a project on, um, I was actually about uh, Christian views of Islam, and I wound up finding the works of the apocalyptic thinker Joachim Fiore, mm -hmm. who's a uh, 12th century southern Italian um, abbot, and one of the more well-known apocalyptic thinkers of the Middle Ages. And I started reading his texts, and I realized that he in fact spoke a lot more about the division between the Latin and Greek churches mm -hmm. than he did about um, relations between Christians and mu Muslims. And this sort of brought me back to this question of the Latin and Greek churches and their estrangement, but also, according to Joachim, he developed this idea, and as far as I know, he's the first apocalyptic thinker to bring this into the field of view, that the two churches would be reunited at the end of time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then this factored in, additionally, to this idea, which goes back to uh, uh, the, New, the Christian New Testament, that at the end of time, um, a portion of the, the Jews will convert to Christianity. Mm -hmm. And for, So for Joachim, you have this staged process whereby the Greeks will return to the Latin church, the Jews will convert. Um, around the same time, you'll see the spread of the gospel to uh, 
um, pagan peoples. And so there will then be, uh, and Joachim uses this biblical quotation that comes up quite a bit in my work, uh, John 10:16. there will be one fold and one shepherd, or there will be one flock and one sheepfold. Mm-hmm. One in one shepherd. Yeah, I was going to actually ask you about the biblical provenance of, of these prophecies, and, and the one that um, the one the one that called to my mind was uh, where I don't remember exactly where it happens. Where Jesus tells the disciples that things are going to get really bad. Yeah, and then they're yeah, going to yeah, get a lot. Get they're going to get a lot get better. better. <laughs> yeah, they're going to get bad, and then the churches are going to unite, or, or or the gospel is going to be preached everywhere, and then yeah. the end end of days will come. I mean, are there other places in the Old Testament and New Testament where this is hinted at? Is it in Daniel or? I... Well, Daniel is an important book for this. I mean, first of all, you're you're exactly right that um that that's from Matthew twenty uh, Matthew twenty four, mm-hmm. um and then this there's a that similar episode comes up in in Mark, um also. And I think Luke also, it's sometimes can, uh, called the little apocalypse, mm-hmm. where Christ predicts there will be war and there will be rumors of war. There will be, there will be um, people that are going to persecute you for your beliefs. There, there, will, be a, there will be a time of tribulation. False, false prophets. Don't forget false yeah, prophets. False, pro- there will be false prophets. Um, this is going to be a rough time, right? Yeah, right. And, but one of the things he says is that my message, before the end, my message will reach all the peoples of, of mm-hmm. the world. Yeah. And this is something that later Christian thinkers picked up on. Well, I, I, I guess one question that immediately occurs to me, and I bet it occurs to the people who listen to this, is uh, how, after a thousand years of this, did Christian thinkers suddenly think we ought to be, as we would say today, proactive about this? That this is not a prediction so much as it is an action plan, and we should go and start converting people or take over the Holy Land. Yeah, I mean, this, I, and that's where I think, uh, while Christian apocalyptic thought is something that you can track and trace for, um, from, from the first century up until the 21st century, part of what I'm doing in the book is looking at a particular, I mean, I could say a historical moment. It's actually like three centuries long, so yeah. it's a moment, a long moment, uh, from the 11th to the 14th centuries. And this is a period that is associated with the emergence of a particularly strong and assertive Roman papacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, beginning in the 11th century, uh, a period that's sometimes referred to as uh, that of the uh, papal reform movement, or sometimes called the Gregorian reform after Pope mm-hmm. Gregory VII. Mm-hmm. And this is a period where the, the papacy starts to um, really step forward and, and agitate more for its own authority as the head of, of the Christian church in Western Europe, but theoretically as the, the leader of Christians everywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. And one of the most well-known uh, outgrowths of this, in part, I mean, there's a lot of factors that go into it, but in part is, is the First Crusade. Mm-hmm. And so what did you, I, tell us about the genesis of that. Yeah, where you have Urban II and, uh, at the Council of Claremont in, in November of 1095 standing up, and as in his capacity as Pope, calling upon Christians to stop fighting each other, and to set forth and rather turn their swords against these unbelievers who have possessed the, the holy places of Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Um, now, this, this vision of papal leadership that you see with Pope Urban is certainly a, a product of and also a, a particularly strong example of this new vision of, of papal leadership over mm-hmm. Christian society. Mm-hmm. And, and it really gets started more around, 10, around the 1050s under Leo IX, and then starts to pick up speed over the second half of the 11th century. And, and what was the old version of the uh, sort of organizational chart, the org chart of Christendom? I know it's very different in the East, which I've studied a little bit, but I mean, I guess my question is, how, how, did, uh, how did it 
come to happen that the papacy needed to assert its authority? Because we think of the papacy as the authority of the Catholic Church. Sure, sure. And this is something, I, I think there's a vision of the papacy uh, that that's very much with us today of, of, of an institution that exercises this sort of leadership over the church. Yeah, exactly. Bottom, the bottom line is, though, if you look back, I mean, the papacy is all, you know, always, but at least since around the third or fourth century, has claimed special privileges and prerogatives and authority. Uh, based in particular on on the fact that Saint Peter himself, according to Catholic tradition, founded the bishopric of Rome. Yeah, and this brings you to Matthew uh, sixteen eighteen, where it can be interpreted anyway that Christ delegates authority to Peter to manage the church, basically after Christ is gone. Yeah, Peter founds Rome, so the bishops of Rome are Peter's heirs and can draw upon that authority, but leads them back ultimately to Peter and through Peter to Christ. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But for much of the early Middle Ages, um, the popes never really have the wherewithal or the opportunity or the infrastructural sort of backing to really try to exercise that authority in, in any meaningful way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But suddenly they get it in the 10th, 11th century? A, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of changes that start happening in the 11th century, and this is a period where, speaking in general terms, uh, this is a period where if you think of the earlier Middle Ages as, a, as, an, as an era of... Um, of, uh, well, I mean, there's a shrinking economy, cities are smaller, um, trade is, is at a minimal, um, I mean, this is a period, you know, we want to avoid the term dark ages, right? Okay. <laughs> uh, but if you, know, if you still had to use the label somewhere, um, I, I think you could look back and maybe and see the early Middle Ages um, in the period immediately after um, the, the uh, transformation, the sort of collapse of the Roman Imperial Order. Uh-huh. That was a time um, that... Um, you know, Europe is definitely um, not not particularly dynamic. That starts to change in the 10th and particularly in the 11th century. And this is a period where commerce starts to revive, cities are being built, uh, re- growing, cities are growing. Um, the political scene starts changing too. You, you know, this is the beginning of starting to see particularly strong, stronger and stronger monarchs and kings. And you see the papacy in, in some sense as a participant in these broader changes. Mm-hmm, and starting to develop a much more dynamic sort of ideology, but also starting to have the resources in addition to put to put on the ground, to be sending out legates, to be trying to exercise more direct authority over churches across Europe. Mm-hmm. And of course, this leads to a lot of conflict too within Europe. And that's one thing that's sort of hovering in the background of my book is this idea. One reason the popes are so eager to put forth this vision of their of their authority over the world in projecting it into the future, into the apocalyptic future, is uh, a lot of times they're having trouble convincing people right in their backyard of their mm-hmm. own authority, mm-hmm. particularly em- emperors, the German emperor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and some of the listeners um, will no doubt be familiar with uh, the investor controversy, for yes, example. Right. Uh-huh. There's this, this conflict between popes and emperors in the, in the later 11th century mm-hmm. about who has the right to um, basically appoint or uh, concentrate bishops. Yeah, I'm, 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 I, must, I must admit that... Uh much to my shame, I think I studied with a God. What was his name? Uh, Bisson. What was it? What's his first name? Oh, Thomas Bisson. Yeah, I think I studied with Thomas Bisson when I was in graduate school, and he will be ashamed uh, of me now, I'm sure. But wasn't that the era in which all the German emperors were named Otto? There was like uh, Otto one the through ten. Or are a little bit earlier, uh, okay. very late tenth, early eleventh. Okay. Century. All right. Yeah. Well. Um, and that, that's actually a period where, if you're thinking back, be- sort of before my book starts, I actually I actually start the book around the year one thousand. Okay. 
And that's a period under the Ottonians where the papacy is, relatively speaking, a weak institution. Mm-hmm. I see. And, the, and the, the Ottonian emperors, the German emperors, actually exercise a great deal of authority over the papacy at that mm-hmm. time. I see. So let, let me ask you this, because it, um, although indulges a certain presentism, because it brings to mind another crusading concept, I was wondering about this. What is the scriptural authority? On, on what basis did uh, the popes argue that... Um, the uh, Christians should uh, pick up the sword and um, forcibly retake the Holy Land or um, convert Jews or uh, convert, that's not quite the right word, the uh, Orthodox Christians. How how did they base this? Did they try to base this in Scripture, or how how did they argue for it? Well, certainly, um, I mean, there's a very ambivalent attitude towards towards armed violence in in the Christian tradition. Christ says, turn the other cheek. Um, Christ also drives the moneylenders from the temple, for example. Mm-hmm. And so an episode like um, in the Gospel where Christ is driving the moneylenders from the temple can be seen as a moment where at points in order to, to defend the faith or somehow um, maintain the integrity or protect the Christian community, you can think about this idea that it might be, uh, might be appropriate at points to to take up arms or to actually use uh, force in defense of the faith. Mm-hmm. Um, another interesting notion here is this idea where, where in the gospel, where there's this idea of uh, uh, people taking up their cross and basically following Christ. Mm-hmm. And this is a biblical biblical reference that comes up a great deal in reference to the crusaders actually sewing uh, crosses or painting crosses or mm-hmm. somehow representing crosses on their on their clothes. Mm-hmm. But they are actually imitating Christ. They are literally taking up the cross. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a fascinating article. Uh, it came out in the late 70s, I believe, by uh, Jonathan Riley Smith, who's a very prominent uh, historian of the Crusades, which is called Crusading as an Act of Love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I know. I deliberately uh, enti- titled it in a somewhat provocative manner. Yeah, no, I can, I can certainly understand that. I, I guess one thing that I'm interested in uh, as well is this notion, because uh, it also relates to another uh, modern form of I guess, millenarianism, uh, this one uh, Jewish. Uh, Is there any scriptural basis for thinking that uh, Christians have to be uh, in control of Jerusalem? I mean, is that that mentioned as as one of the sort of triggers for the end time? Or is there any any reason why Christians have to have the Holy Land in order for the end time to come? If you're thinking on a scriptural basis, my my first instinct would would be to say no. Um, I mean, how does the Bible, how does the Christian Bible end? It ends with the book of Revelation, mm-hmm. and it ends with, with Jerusalem featuring quite prominently, but of course, it's the heavenly Jerusalem Yeah, right. that's descending, right? It's, right. God, it's God's kingdom. Right. The new Jerusalem. It's the new Jerusalem. Yeah. And certainly you find some Christian thinkers uh, going back as far as the uh, 4th century when pilgrimage to Jerusalem is actually starting, and there seems to be an increasing interest among Christians. This is after Constantine converts and the Roman Empire starts to become Christian, mm-hmm. you see more and more interest in pilgrimage, there's church building in Jerusalem. Some people are very uncomfortable with this idea. Yeah. That you shouldn't be focused on the earthly Jerusalem. Uh, but I think still, it's such a powerful notion to, to somehow have possession or be in the place where Christ lived, carried out his ministry, died, was resurrected, and ascended to heaven. So even if there isn't necessarily a firm scriptural imperative to have control or possession of Jerusalem, I think it's an idea that some Christians, anyway, just found so compelling and, mm-hmm. and frankly had trouble letting, I think, some trouble letting go of or, or looking beyond. Yeah, no, I think, that's a, I think that's exactly right. And I know that in the case of 
Well, in the case of a lot of uh, movements such as this, let's put it this way, millenarian movements, that they um, there is something extra scriptural that they're calling on that is pushing them or convincing them to do something because because it is it is relatively difficult, I think, to find the notion of a crusade in any of the books of the New Testament or or excuse any such thing. But they they managed to do it. So let, let's go back to the role of the, the papacy for just a second. So uh, are you saying then that um, to put it most provocatively? that the Crusades are sort of a papal power play? Well, I would say that the, that the Crusades emerge in part out of, out of this expression of Christian, um, of papal leadership. I, I think it's hard to imagine the Crusades at, without thinking about this, the, the 11th century Reformer papacy as really looking to put forth its authority to speak for um, the Christian community. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think so, I mean, issues of the sort of power dynamics within Europe between popes and emperors and kings, I think are clearly at play. Of course, then there's this whole other question that I don't really get into in my book of how the laity received this message and might have adopted it and adapted it and thought about it in their own terms. I mean, I don't think we can imagine the pope as a sort of puppet master, you know, marionette, pulling the strings. I don't, I don't think that does any justice to the reality mm-hmm. and limits of papal power in the 11th and 12th centuries. I think also, of course, you know, once the message is, as we know from our own days, right, once the message is put out there, people can oftentimes read it and interpret it in different ways. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's a whole other current of, of enthusiasm for crusading that had really very little to do with the papacy. Um, so, so they launched the first crusade, and it goes pretty well, if I recall Yeah, I mean, correctly. they captured Jerusalem. Yeah. That's the thing. I think that it, when you read the histories of the crusade, the chronicles, they're written after the capture of Jerusalem. Yeah. Everyone knows how the crusade turns out yeah right and so they, they look back and then have that's explain this dramatic event i mean this is this is in itself almost of biblical proportion right um and the conquer, conquest of jerusalem really has a lot of different sort of resonances one of them being uh, when the romans sacked the city in 70 ce there's a jewish yeah. rebellion the city is sacked yeah according to christians that was a moment where um god had basically punished the jews for rejecting christ mm-hmm and then, of course, Christians have control of Jerusalem under Constantine in the 4th century. But then the Muslims come and take it away from their perspective. Mm-hmm. And so Jerusalem is in loss. Yeah. And then suddenly it's been regained again. Yeah. And so there's this sort of meta-narrative, you can imagine, going from the Bible all the way up to, to 1099, when the Crusaders capture the city. And they're suddenly thinking to themselves, how do we explain this? This is one yeah. of the... As Robert the Monk says in his Crusade Chronicle, this is the biggest thing that's happened since Christ was here. <laughs> <laughs> he says that straight up. I'm reminded of John Lennon saying he's bigger than Christ. But uh, the, yeah, no, I see that. So did, were people were people thinking, well, this is the uh, this is the sign, and now Christ is going to descend, and we're all going to be raptured? There's a there's a debate among scholars about just how much um, apocalyptic thought was a factor in spurring on enthusiasm for the Crusades, mm-hmm. and just how much. It might have shaped uh, reactions to the Crusade, uh, the First Crusade, immediately. I mean, one interesting thing we were, we were asking earlier about justifications for the capture of Jerusalem. Another Crusade chronicler, Guibert of Nogent, writes that um, everyone knows Antichrist is going to come. Mm-hmm. And we all know that he will come in Jerusalem. Uh, and we all know that he'll persecute Christians. So we need to have some Christians in Jerusalem. <laughs> and so, and he actually attributes these words to Pope Urban II. I, I highly doubt Urban ever said this. Yeah. Um, but, so it basically saying we need to capture the city so there'll be Christians there for Antichrist to persecute. Yeah, right. Right. I was going to jump in and say the rapture, uh, just, just for the record, is 
it's more of a Protestant name. Sorry thing. about that. Yes, I, I, I should I, correct. Yeah, I'm, I was raised a Lutheran, so I'm always waiting to <laughs> raptured. I hope it's not while I'm in line for coffee because I'll need coffee on the way. Yeah, but you've kind of reminded me of the search for the unblemished red calf, which many of uh, I think there are Midwesterners uh, who've gotten together with Orthodox Jews to look for because in order for something that I can't remember exactly what it is. Uh, you, you need an unblemished red calf. And so they're, they're to help almost, trigger the end time scenario. I, I guess it is. Yeah. I can never really remember, but there's this, there's this peculiar alliance of, of fundamentalist Christians and Orthodox Jews. Oh, certainly. I was looking the whole for time, this red calf. That That's interesting. And you know, one, the whole time I was writing this book, I'd be lying if I said a lot of this uh, present day stuff. I mean, it is sort of, was in the back of my mind, and yeah, control no. of Jerusalem, and you have you do have uh, evangelical Christian groups who have links with um, sort of more right wing um, Jewish groups. For right. uh, it, it's fascinating how much this whole question of who possesses Jerusalem. Right. It's still such a a, a third rate, such a, a lightning rod. Well, yeah, I mean, it, yeah, Jews, I mean, Christians, Muslims. I mean, I think you bring up an extraordinarily good point, and and because it's really that it's not exactly the same context, but it's pretty darn close. I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, and this is something I bring up at the very conclusion of my book. I mean, while I was writing this book, it, it seemed like um, you know, not a day would go. I, I remember driving home from work one day and listening to NPR, and Terry Gross was interviewing uh, um, John Hagee, who's one of these. Uh, he has a group called Christians United for Israel in Texas, and yeah. part of why they support the state of Israel. It's part of their end time scenario. Right, exactly. They're probably looking for the red calf too. They, they I, might, they might be actually. Um, red calf. So it was interesting to be working on this stuff in the 12th and 13th century, and of course things are very different back then than they do now. Uh-huh. And as a historian, I want to be attentive to, to these crucial differences. But at the same time, there's an interesting story here that I think we're all still kind of kind yeah. of participating in. No, that's absolutely. It's an absolutely fascinating sort of. Uh, I was going to say trans-historical, but trans-temporal. It's really lasted such a long time, this issue, and, and it it doesn't seem to want to go away. I'm a bit fatigued of it. I was thinking that, you know, there hasn't, there really hasn't been a moment in my somewhat lengthy life now in, when, in which I have not been able to wake up and uh, find some article in the paper of record about Jerusalem. <laughs> There's, it's just, you can't get away from it. I'm, it's just everywhere. So let me, let me go back to the Crusades again. So the first one went well, but again, as somebody that studied Byzantium and, and Russia for many years, the uh, the second one did not go so well. No. No, it, did pretty, it pretty well went pear-shaped. So tell us yeah, about that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they were attacking Damascus, which um, was actually uh, a Muslim uh, – uh, the capital of the Muslim Kingdom was allied with the early with the Crusaders at that point. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, yeah. The bottom one thing I find interesting in terms of thinking Christians thinking about God's plan for history is the fact that the Second Crusade does not go particularly well, and then of course in 1187, uh, Saladin winds up recapturing Jerusalem. Yeah. And so Jerusalem is lost again. Uh, the Fourth Crusade. I'm sure as somebody who studied uh, Byzantine Russian history, I don't have to tell you. Yeah. 1204 captures Constantinople, a Greek city, and we could we could probably talk about that. Yeah, for we will interview in and of itself. But this raises a problem, doesn't it? When the Crusaders capture Jerusalem, people writing about the Crusade can say we have achieved this this miraculous thing. When you lose Jerusalem, when the Crusade doesn't go so well, you have a problem, don't you? You need mm-hmm. to explain why. Uh, what have we done that God so ticked off at us, basically? Yeah. Well, what did they say? Well, a lot of times they had to do a sin. Yeah. That, that, and this goes back again to the Christian Old Testament, this idea that um, when the Hebrews fail to observe God's law, he punishes them, he scourges them, not to destroy them, but to correct them. Uh-huh. And, and you see this idea develop in Crusader ideology that um, 
we clearly are not worthy, we have sinned. And this notion that when things go bad in history, it's on account of, on account of sin, and this then leads to calls for further reform. We need to clean up our act. Right. If we can only do that, then perhaps, again, we'll be worthy of, of regaining Jerusalem. Yeah, this is, a, this is an arrow that uh, has been in the quiver of uh, clerical reformers for a long, long time. Then. So, so let's, go, let's go back then um, before we move on to this reformist tendency that comes out of uh, the, the difficulties that they have in the uh, Holy Land. Let's talk a little bit about um, the taking of Constantinople, which I think many people don't really understand because, you know, as you say, it is a, it is a Greek city. What, what, were they, what were they doing there? Taking yeah, I mean, this is one of the... Uh, the Fourth Crusade gets, definitely gets a lot of bad press, yeah. um, which, which raises the interesting idea that maybe all the other Crusades are okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's fine to be fighting Muslims, but, well, you're fighting fellow Christians. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think on a moral level, there, there's problems with crusading in general, but uh, regardless, <laughs> there is this idea that somehow the Fourth Crusade, uh, there's books written about it called The Great Betrayal, yeah. uh, The Unholy Crusade. Yeah. Um, you know, part of what I try to explore in my book is this idea of how even the capture of Constantinople could, be, could have a certain logic to it. And there's a whole debate about how they wind up there. Basically, they wind up going to Constantinople to help install this young um, exiled prince on the throne. And he promises them funds. He promises to help support the crusade in return, to make a long story short. Mm -hmm. And he then doesn't have the funds or refuses to hand over the money. (laughs) And the situation deteriorates. And eventually the crusaders wind up capturing the city and keeping it for themselves at Mm -hmm. that point. It was a good city. I mean, it was a big, it was a big one. It may be the biggest one. Well, right? one of the ways you can then think about this, and you see Pope Innocent III, for example, uh, in the aftermath of the Crusade, saying, well, we just captured Constantinople. It is one of the, it's the heart of the, of the Greek Empire. Clearly, this must be part of, again, God's plan. Yeah, right. Uh, that the Greeks were, in fact, rejecting Roman authority, that the Greeks had strayed into heresy, I want to remind you here, I'm talking uh, on behalf of Innocent III. Yes, right. I see. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, this was the Latin argument, was that the Greeks had, in fact, deviated from God's law and rejected Rome, and now they were being punished. And so right. God had decided to transfer. And this brings up the book of Daniel that you mentioned earlier. There's a famous, famous passage in the book of Daniel where uh, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of a statue. With, I think it's a head of gold, and a chest of um, bronze, legs of iron, um, or feet and then uh, feet of iron and mud. Um, I think I'm missing one metal in there somewhere. <laughs> but but this, this, this dream is interpreted as the idea that empire and imperial power will change hands and transfer. And at first it was in the hands of, um, of the uh, Babylonian, or Babylonians, and it goes to the Persians, right. and then it goes to the Greeks, and then the Romans. And there's this, this popular model about the idea that God sort of ordains that imperial power will move around. Right. And Innocent actually quotes, the, uh, Pope Innocent quotes the book of Daniel. Right. And he says, hey, here, here we see it again. Empire, the Byzantine Empire is being transferred over. Right. That. Old Romes and new Romes. Yeah. And, and then the move last, they're getting yeah. the imperial power back. Yeah. And for Innocent, this is the first step again towards future events. Now, with Constantinople in our, in our power, we'll be able to recover Jerusalem, yeah. defeat the Muslims, yeah. spread the Gospels. Um, of course, right. this doesn't quite work out that way. So, what and, do you? Uh, th- this may be a little bit outside your ken. I'm sure it's not actually. The, uh, the what did the Greeks think about all of this? What did the I was just going to mention. Yeah. Obviously, the Greeks uh, don't feel the same way about the whole uh, the whole um, 
outcome of the fourth crusade. Um, And yeah, I don't work a lot on the Greek side myself, but it's a natural, I think it's a natural question to ask. And, um, you know, clearly, you know, the Greeks don't think that they've been punished by God any more than, um, you know, if you ask the Jewish rabbi in the second century, you know, that that God had punished them for rejecting Christ. I mean, there's a whole separate perspective there from the Eastern Christian community. Right. Right, right. So they, important to remember that. In fact. Do they? Do they? Um, wh- how? Do you know anything more about the way they interpret this? I mean, did they, you know? I mean, I guess it just strikes me that they must have thought that the uh, Western Church, and we want to be careful with that because there really wasn't uh, so much a Western Church, or there was something, but that they'd gone crazy. That they, they, I mean, what? What could they? Well, be I mean, thinking? there's letters from the the there's Greek emperors basically in exile uh, in the 13th century, and. Um, one of the things, Innocent, I mean, Innocent initially, Pope Innocent is quite enthusiastic early, early on about what's happened here, but then increasingly reports come back to him about the fact that crusaders were, were plundering and raping and the, uh, abusing Greek Christians. And you actually see letters from the Greek emperors in exile writing to the Pope and saying, yeah. I mean, you're, you're, you're not acting like Christians. I mean, right. you are preying upon us. And Innocent increasingly starts to say, like, how are we supposed to bring the Greeks back into the fold? when we're treating them, they, they see us like dogs. They see us like yeah. vicious bullies, basically. Yeah. And so everyone was aware of the fact that, um, in theory anyway, there was supposed to be a certain bond of brotherhood between Christians. And I think the Greeks were not slow to point out the fact that the capture of Constantinople yeah. could be seen as perhaps uh, you know, violating that bond. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a, it's a rich irony. So let's go back to this point you made, and it's one of the most important points in the book, and that is that, so when things are going well, then they're following God's directions. That's all good. But when things are going poorly, they say it's because God is punishing them for their sins, and those sins have to be cleaned up. And this turns out to be a kind of problematic logic for them. Why don't you explain that? It does. I mean, one of the things I started to to see as I moved into the 13th and 14th century in my research was an increasingly sort of, I guess we might say, radical strand of apocalyptic thinking, which, which still believed that the destiny of the church was to spread around the world, to bring into the fold Jews, Muslims, infidels. But what they started to imagine was that, in fact, it is not the corrupt church of this present world. It is not the corrupt Roman church of this present world. But there's going to have to be a purgation first, mm-hmm. that it will be a new spiritual church. Mm-hmm. And part of this taps into, again, mentioning Joachim Fiore, whom I mentioned earlier, who had this powerful model of history based on the Trinity, mm-hmm. that there was the age of the Father, which was basically back up until from Adam to Christ, the age mm-hmm. of the Son, which lasted from Christ up until around the time of Joachim in the 12th century, and then what Joachim foresaw was that there would be the future age of the Holy Spirit. And this would be a transformative moment. This is when, when the Jews would convert and the, the Greeks would return to the faith. What you see in the 13th century are some followers of Joachim. And Joachim himself never, never said this, but some of his, of his uh, devotees generations later start to argue that that transformative era of the Holy Spirit will, in fact, mean an, an effective end to the present-day Roman church. Mm-hmm. It's sacraments, it's, uh, it's different institutions... The power of the clergy would, would in a sense, lapse, um, and you would see this new spir- spiritual leadership of monks, and you'd see a new spir- spiritual era. Now, you can imagine how the Pope might react to this, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and you see some churchmen, and this happens, there's this particular episode in the mid-13th century, 
or this one Franciscan who uh, Gerard of uh, Borgio San Donino, he he's actually he writes a book basically saying in this new spiritual age all these things are going to happen, um, and he is investigated by the Franciscan order. He's investigated by a papal commission. He's eventually thrown in prison, mm-hmm. and his book is burned. Mm-hmm. But but this idea doesn't go away, and I tr- I trace it in the book into the um into the 14th century, late 13th, 14th century, where apocalyptic thinkers are highly critical of, of the Roman papacy and highly critical of the present-day church. Mm-hmm. Still envisioning the future world where Christendom will be realized on a, on a, on a global scale. Mm-hmm. But first, there's going to need to be this, this purgation, this, this clean, cleaning of house, basically. Yeah, let me ask the uh, obvious question from the point of view of a, someone who's a, a sort of lapsed Lutheran. Is there any connection between this and uh, what happens much later during uh, the 16th century? Well, you know, I end the book on, um, speaking as a last Catholic, I'll throw that out there. Um, um, I, I end the book um, in the 14th century, and part of why I do that is, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier in, in the interview that um, you know, I'm tracking these apocalyptic thoughts during the era of, of, of sort of papal ascendancy, when the papacy was a very powerful institution. And just to generalize, when you get into the 14th century, and you have the schism. Um, you have the, well, you have the papacy move to Avignon first of all. The, uh, yeah. the uh, sort of infamous uh, for some people Avignon mm-hmm. papacy. And then you later on have a schism, a schism where you have a, a pope in Rome and a pope in Avignon. Eventually, there's three popes. To make a long story short, the 14th century is an era where the, the age of papal monarchy, so to speak, the age where the papacy is at its greatest extent and greatest power draws to a close. Mm-hmm. However, I try to suggest in the epilogue to my book that these ideas about the conversion of the world, they don't go away. Mm-hmm. They start to look a little different, certainly. I mean, for one thing, in the later Middle Ages, you start to see increasingly powerful, what we would say, sort of proto-nation states, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. I mean, the kingdom of France, the kingdom of Spain. Yep. And, and you start to see this idea that uh, it is, in fact, these kings that will spread Christianity. You know, the king of Spain will spread Christianity. Uh-huh. King of Spain. And, of course, then where this leads you to eventually is, is someone like Christopher Columbus. Yeah. And you start looking into the, the fifth, late 15th and 16th centuries, and you have someone like Columbus. And a lot of people don't know about Columbus's book of prophecies. Um, I just discovered this myself not too long mm-hmm. ago, where in between his third and fourth voyage to the, to the Americas, to the New World, when he was particularly out of favor at this point with the Spanish crown, he compiled, with the help of a, of a monk, a book of different prophecies from the Bible and from post-biblical apocalyptic thinkers, including Joachim of by the way. Mm-hmm. And the point of these prophecies were to, were to show that Columbus's voyages of discovery were, in fact, fulfilling God's plan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I found as late as the, uh, I mentioned very briefly, Thomas of Malvenda. He's a, he's a Jesuit in the 17th century. And he's still exploring this idea mm-hmm. that the conversion of the Indians in the New World, that now, in fact, now the gospel has spread around the entire world. Right. And so perhaps, again, we are approaching this, this point of the end times. Just, the story I'm telling, I think it does have this sort of post-medieval uh, implications. We just need to find that unblemished red calf, and then we're all I set. don't know where that is. I don't I mean, either, but it's probably here in the Midwest somewhere, and I know that there are some very hardworking uh, Orthodox Jewish and um, fundamentalist Christian um, 
uh, uh, cattle breeders who are really I don't think my book will it. help. I should say, in all honesty, so there's no false advertising. That I don't think there'll be any clues for the red cat. Yeah, no, I don't think still, no. They should still read it. But, uh, no, um, I agree completely. They probably will enjoy it. Uh, I know that I did. So let, let me ask a couple of questions which are uh, partially related to um, the, the main topic of the book, but I think they'd be interesting to the listeners, and I know they'd be interesting to me. One concerns sources, uh, and I don't think people realize uh, – and I, I just don't think people realize how difficult it is to do this work. And I'm not throwing you any bones because I've done it myself. Sure, it really sure. is hard because the source base is is peculiar. Can you talk a little bit about the source? Yeah, I mean, I often say, you know, I've, I have this joke with a friend of mine who's a, a, a fellow historian. Um, she does African history. And we joke sometimes about historians aren't particularly smarter than anyone else. They're just more obsessive. Yeah. I mean, you're basically willing to devote a large chunk of your time to reading reading yeah. text, oftentimes in foreign languages, and, yeah. and obsessively digging into them. And, of course, in my case, this involves um, reading medieval Latin and digging into some theological texts and apocalyptic texts that uh, can be very foreign to our own sensibilities. Yeah. Uh, prophecies can be really bizarre. I mean, you, yeah. you know, you're, we've been talking about this red calf. I mean, when you're reading a 12th century text and it starts talking about, you know, there will be a black eagle that will appear in the sky and it will have swords for tail, for its tail, and... And you're trying to figure out like, what is going on here yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah, um, no, I don't know. So, but but in addition to being difficult to understand and read, they're also few. I mean, compared to you know anything after the 15th yeah, I mean, or 16th a, century. I mean, definitely. I mean, this is a particular challenge for for people who work in the Middle Ages. I think, uh, like you said, up until um, up until around the. Uh, and certainly around the 14th, 15th century, and then in the 16th century. Yeah, so you have a limited source base. I mean, one of, the, one of the positive things about that is the fact that um, a lot of the sources have been edited. Yeah. So they're in Latin, but they're in these editions, which if you have a large mm-hmm. research library, you can have access to. Yeah, them. no, that's terrific. A lot of them are online these days as well. Now, yeah, the, there's this uh, collection called the Patrologia Latina, which is it's quite old. The, the editions themselves are, are sometimes faulty and quite old. But it's still a great starting point. It's something yeah. like 215 volumes. Yeah, yeah. And it's all online at this point. That's, um, that's a although it still is useful. You know, I did spend some time doing research at the Bibliothèque Nationale. I went to the British Library. I went to the Vatican. And it's still useful to go back and, and actually consult original manuscripts. Yeah. Um, I mean, first of all, it's fun. Yeah. I mean, it's great to be holding, like, a, an 11th century. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, but you can still find um, you can still find these little gems here and there yeah, in the yeah. manuscripts themselves. Yeah, that's great. So uh, things are still being uncovered in the archives, then. Yeah, I mean, in many cases, text will be misidentified, mm-hmm. um, and so you might uh, you know, a historian will come along and look at it and realize that it, this isn't what the person doing the catalog a hundred years ago thought it was. Right. Exactly. Um, you can sometimes find text that people have known about but mm-hmm. haven't necessarily paid attention to. And then, of course, you know, writing history in 2009, we are asking very different questions than historians 30 years ago or historians 60 years ago. Yeah, which, which actually, the great... yeah, I was going to say, which actually brings me to my, fi- my sort of not final question, but my, the next uh, question that I had, which is related, um, and that is, this brings a certain presentism, which I'll indulge again uh, to your topic, but... I don't well, mind indulging in uh, All right, I, I don't really know it's either. Clear. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't either. The, the, um, a lot of my colleagues do, but the, uh, the, one of the things I found very interesting in the book was the, uh, if I understood it correctly, was the attitude that um, the, uh, that, that the, 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 the papacy and the, and the crusaders and those who wrote apocalyptic texts had toward Jews. Mm-hmm. And, and it struck me as um, really profoundly different than the one which we think about when we think about anti-Semitism, mm-hmm. that, that they're really very different things. Can you talk a little about that? Am I wrong about that? Or? Well, I mean, it's, again, I think a, a good word here is this idea of a certain ambivalence. Um, I mean, to have 
if you, I mean, starting out, you, just, you look at the Christian Bible. You have the New Testament and you have the Old Testament. You can't have the New Testament without the Old Testament, right? Mm-hmm. And there's this idea that is sort of deeply, it's, it's deeply ingrained, particularly in medieval um, theology, that you know, Christianity emerged from Judaism. And there's this sense of Christians have entered this new covenant, this new relationship with God. But there's this hope that eventually, and again, this is based on a um, letter to the Romans and certain biblical passages, there is this hope that, um, that the, there will eventually be this return of the, of the Jews. They will convert to Christianity. They'll recognize the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an important idea here, this idea, it's sometimes called the Augustinian uh, doctrine of uh, witness, or, which is referring to Augustine of Hippo, writing in the fourth, late 4th, 5th centuries. And he has this idea, and it's based on the book of Psalms, that you should uh, um, basically drive the Jews out. They should, be, they should be held in contempt, so to speak. But at the same time, do not destroy them. Do mm-hmm. not slay them. Mm-hmm. First of all, we need them as witnesses. Mm-hmm. You know, our, our Messiah emerged from their religious mm-hmm. tradition. You know, it is the, the Hebrew scriptures that predict the coming of Christ. Mm-hmm. We need to have them here as witnesses to the truth of our faith. Mm-hmm. And alternately, it says in the Bible that they're going to convert. Yeah, exactly. And so we can't kill them all off. Right. And, and again, this is an idea that still plays out in some different ways in um, certain evangelical circles now. Yeah. That there needs to be a Jewish presence in yeah. the Holy Land as part of the end time scenario. Yeah. Um, and this leads to the uncomfortable idea that when Christ does return, uh, the, you know, the Jews will face a choice. Do they convert and recognize Christ, or are they damned? Yeah. yeah. So it does make for some strange bedfellows. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think the thing that came... To my mind, while I was reading, is is, is exactly the, the emphasis on uh, conversion. Mm-hmm. That that uh, these were not infidels; they, these were a different sort of folk, and that they needed to be, or would, of their own volition, convert. And and yeah. this is very different, I think, from the modern, really post-Nazi understanding of of uh, of anti-Semitism, wh- yeah, whatever yeah, it might be. It's just a very certainly, different certainly. understanding. And I, and I really think the Orthodox or what should I say, the fundamentalist Christians in the United States are, are sort of closer to this, that spirit of things, that they, they understand that, that they, they don't partake of that sort of post-Nazi anti-Semitism or anything like it. And so I think it's a way to understand exactly the way they feel about uh, you know, the Holy Land and what's going on there. It helps us, it clarifies what we see going on on the ground, both here in the Midwest and places, you know, I'm sure in North Carolina as well, uh, but also in the, in the Holy Land because the, the, um, the taint of of virulent sort of uh, Nazi anti-Semitism is, is is still with us, but they, they are not, I think, guilty of it. So yeah, I mean, the, first of all, ide- biological ideas of race are just we're not operative in the Middle Ages. Yeah, right. right. I mean, yeah. you can't. And this is an idea that you actually start to see even back in the very, very late Middle Ages and early modern period that it's something in the blood. Yeah. And you can't. You can baptize someone, but you cannot change their their blood or change. Yeah. Well, it's I know a that very it, it, different mentality than this yeah. idea of conversion. Yeah, no, and, and I think that it's. I don't know if it starts, but I've, my my cursory reading of it says that that actually um, the Nazis weren't exactly the first to think of it in this way, but in fact the, the Spanish were. That, um, yeah, exactly. It, this yeah. is an idea that starts to develop in Spain with the uh, this idea of the purity of blood. Exactly. And then, yeah, of course, yeah. in the 19th and early 20th centuries, with the rise of modern medical science, it yeah. takes on a whole much more intense form, and obviously that factors into this. Um, yeah. It's incredibly. Um, 
a vicious interpretation yeah. of things. No, that, that's, that. no, that's right. That's right. Well, it's, it, this, I mean, your book's illuminating in many ways. We've taken up a, a lot of your time, Brett, and we really appreciate it. I should say that the book we've been talking about is Dominion of God, uh, Christendom and Apocalypse in the Middle Ages. And Brett, let me uh, conclude the interview by asking you uh, our traditional I guess it's traditional now. Uh, final question here on New Books in History, and that is, what are you working on now? What is your next project? Well, I'm still interested in some of these questions about missionaries and the spreading of, of Christianity, although now I've looked at all these apocalyptic ideas. I'm kind of interested in what actual missionaries on the ground did. Mm-hmm. And um, so I'm, I'm basically still chasing after uh, uh, missionaries and uh, also a bunch of papal letters that they would write to, in, to uh, Muslim rulers. Mm-hmm. and uh, the sort of correspondence and diplomacy that actually went on between Muslims and Christians in the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. No, that's, a, that's an interesting topic. Let me, let me pitch an idea to you. I do this sometimes with authors, and it's something that I encountered in my own research. And you know, we have this notion, for example, that uh, you know, the Black Plague, 1350, that somehow it, it lasted a little while and then stopped. Well, as you well know, it didn't really stop. That these, yeah, these pestilences kept happening into the 16th century or maybe beyond for all I know. Well, it's similar, I, I, you know, it's kind of similar with Crusades. I mean, we think of them as a, uh, um, as, as, as a phenomenon of the medieval period or the Middle Ages, but in fact, they were preached uh, well into the 16th century. And, and I know that they were preached against Russians, for example, um, in the 16th century. And I, I would love to see a book that, that, that sort of took the story of the crusading spirit past the invasions of the Holy Land and into, uh, you know, sort of the, the time in which we uh, think that they lapsed. Maybe there is such a book. I don't know. Well, I mean, Nor- uh, there's one story Norman Housley's worked quite a bit on the later Crusades, but I think you're onto something there that... Um, you know, a lot of times we think the Middle Ages end around the year 1500, and I think it's really helpful, actually, to think across that divide. Yeah, no, I do, and, too. And so this work I'm doing on missionaries, for example, I've sometimes considered starting out around the year 1400 yeah. and actually bringing the book up to around 1600 or, or, yeah. or something like that. Yeah. It's interesting. These boundaries are artificial, ultimately. Yeah, they Historians are. make them up. You know, the Middle Ages end, the modern era begins. Yeah. I think it's helpful to think outside the box and, and, and look across those. No, I think, that's, I think, I think you're, absolutely, you're absolutely right about that. I know that in the work that I'm doing now, people who do... Uh, the history of the book and things like this have been pretty successful at that. So I, I, w- I wish you a great luck. And also, you know, I, I should say someone who has brought up a kind of a, as a Lutheran. I mean, we think acro- Lutherans think across that divide quite a bit um, mm-hmm. for, for various reasons, because Luther was really a person in the Middle Ages. I mean, we think about him. He, he, he really was somebody with a kind of medieval mentality. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So anyway, uh, well, Brett, thank you very much for being on the show. I really uh, enjoyed talking to you today. Yeah, thank you very much, Marshall. All right. OK, take care. You've been listening to an interview with Brett Whalen about his new book, Dominion of God, Christendom, and Apocalypse in the Middle Ages. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week. Thank you.